tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Red Hill water crisis is moving into its third month, and this week lawmakers at the state and the city advanced legislation to tighten up on military facilities that threaten our drinking water. For the last three weeks, a team from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has been in Hawaii handing out flyers and going door-to-door in some neighborhoods trying to get participation in a survey about the health effects due to the contamination of drinking water for those tied to the military's water system. Captain Renee Funk is with the National Center for Environmental Health within the CDC. We spoke to her yesterday afternoon as she returned to Atlanta. Uh, Funk says they are pushing to get as many people who are eligible for help due to the tainted water to take the online survey. Tens of thousands of families are potentially affected Uh, The survey covers everything from children to pets. It's about a 30-minute survey, and it includes questions about the ways that they use the contaminated water, any health symptoms that they have experienced, and any medical care that they have sought. There's also questions about the impact on their children and pets, the participant's health status prior to the water contamination, and ways to contact the participant in the future. And the participation is voluntary, and their identities will be kept confidential. You know, uh, we did hear the Navy secretary talk about, you know, how they were going to be trying to figure out how to track, you know, nursing moms or pregnant women who were concerned mm-hmm. about, you know, mm-hmm. drinking this water, you know, before anyone knew that there was a problem. Can you tell us how this survey might dovetail into that? Sure. So uh, what you're referring to is the Department of Defense Registry. And they are attempting to put together a list of everyone who may have been affected by this. These are two similar yet different activities. So our survey is focused a little bit more on people's health and their exposure to the contaminated water. And again, we're doing it through a partnership with the Hawaii Department of Health. And it's an opportunity to help them better understand the health impacts of the contamination event and then help to determine the next steps to protect the health of the citizens who were exposed. So while families may have uh, signed up for that registry, that program, you're saying we also need you to take part in this survey? Correct. Yeah, we're encouraging them to do both. The survey closes February 7th, and we'd like as many people to participate as possible. So what happens to this data once you collect it? So we'll analyze it and share it with the Hawaii Department of Health, and they will use it to better understand the health impacts of this contamination event and help determine the next steps to protect the health of citizens who are exposed. The results will be summarized into a report that will be publicly available. Do you know how long it might be before that's released? I hesitate to say exactly, but it usually takes around six to eight weeks after a survey closes for us to get the report out. And how uh, unusual is it to have your agency kind of step in to do these types of surveys? This is actually part of a program that we have developed over time called the Assessment of Chemical Exposures, or ACE program. And it helps state and local health departments conduct rapid epidemiological assessments when toxic substance spills or chemical emergencies happen. And give us an example of where you've been dispatched across the country. Most recently, we had a chemical spill in Illinois uh, that we responded to about six months ago. Were you uh, tapped during the uh, Flint, Michigan, you know, water crisis as well? Yes, yes, we did one. uh, That was kind of similar in some ways. It was focused on rashes that people were experiencing after exposure to the lead in the water. Really important, though, that you get a good cross-section of people, get as many people participating in this, really to get the the feel for, you know, the numbers and the magnitude of this. Yes, exactly. What's been the biggest stumbling block, you think? I know this happened, like, over the holidays, and, and you know, families have been away from their homes. 
but any particular challenges that your team saw when they were uh, out here? Uh, we've really put a lot of work into outreach. We've been reaching out to you know the hotels where folks are staying, medical clinics, veterinary clinics, uh, schools, child care facilities. So we've definitely been trying to contact folks through all the different you know mechanisms where they may have been exposed. And so really now the challenge is just trying to get folks to complete the survey so that we can include it in, in our results. What efforts have been made to contact, let's say, the businesses that might be at some of the you know, base exchanges or you know food courts, that kind of thing? Yes, we've been reaching out through the Chamber of Commerce to reach those folks, and they, they've been quite helpful. And what about the churches? in the neighborhoods? Yes, we put together a list of all the churches and we've been uh, reaching out and contacting them and many of them have agreed to send the information through their email listservs and that's been very helpful. And the response so far, I mean, has it been robust? I mean, this thing is just dragged out longer than anybody thought. Certainly. Uh, it's, I would say it's going well, but, you know, we always could use more participation. So I, I guess I would say, you know, early on with some of these out, outreach efforts, uh, you know, we were getting hundreds of people filling out the surveys. And this week, it's kind of been slumping down a little bit. Uh, and so that's part of my reaching out to you is we ho- we'd like to get those numbers back up. Okay. All right. No, and I have been in contact with some of those families. I know, you know, many are still in the hotels and, you know, expecting to return to their homes as the flushing is done. Is your team still out there in the neighborhoods? Our team returned uh, after the end of the week this past week, but we're still working virtually, so we're, t- we're trying to continue our efforts that way. We do include information about the pet, their children and pets in our survey, and the pets have been quite interesting because um, you know, many people have reported that their pets were affected, and that's certainly helpful to us. You know, kind of similar to a child, they have a small body size, body weight, so sometimes they have symptoms faster or sooner than adults do. That was Captain Renee Funk, the Associate Director for Emergency Management for the CDC. And, you know, early on in the crisis, we did reach out to the veterinary clinic at Fort Shafter, which has been reporting an uptick in cases of petroleum poisoning in cats and dogs. And if you're on the water system and may have been affected by the contamination dating you know, back to November, you were asked to take part in that online survey. We'll have links on our website later today. And a reminder, the CDC survey ends February 7th. Civil Beat Reality Check today looks at the timeline for the order to defuel the military's underground fuel tanks at Red Hill. Turns out it may take longer than people think. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, you've been tracking this for a while now. And, uh, you know, the the latest is, you know, we've seen this week the uh, legislation that's advancing at Honolulu uh, uh, Hale as well as over at the state capitol. Uh, But there was a status uh, update, a status check earlier this week on the um, uh, contested case hearing. What can you tell us? Right. So just to refresh everyone's memory, the Navy has agreed to drain the fuel from its Red Hill fuel facility following the contamination of its water supply and the health department ordering them to drain their tanks. Um, But the actual defueling will not necessarily be happening in the immediate future. There's, um, as you noted, there is a status check earlier this week. And what came out of that is there's really going to be a process of assessment and government reviews and then repairs before any fuel is actually removed from Red Hill. Um, And that could take months or possibly longer. It's really a big question mark right now. There's no particular deadline from the health department as to those repairs. And um, it's only until the repairs are completed that a 30-day clock begins and then the defueling has to um, begin. But um, it could take a while. So this order or a work plan or whatever it is that we're supposed to be getting, that's, that's like just next week though, right? Right. So the Navy is going to submit this like work plan and schedule for an assessment, um, like 
this is like layers of, of government speak um, on February 2nd. Um, and then after the, the, they have hired a third party contractor, that contractor is going to basically assess the Red Hill facilities operations and system integrity. Um, and then they're going to submit that by April 30th. Um, and DOH, the, the health department is going to review that. It's, it's just this long process. And a lot of people are feeling like, well, hey, we want the fuel removed now, and we also want it removed permanently, is what they're saying. Um, and the health department order isn't really aimed at that. Um, so as you mentioned, there's these legislative um, efforts at the city and state level as well to um, kind of go beyond what the health order provides. And your story talks about how uh, uh, Governor David Ige, while he did um, issue that um, emergency order, he's not really... Uh, out there saying that we ought to decommission this facility. Right. So uh, Governor Ige's administration, his health department, issued the order to drain the tanks temporarily. Um, but he isn't among the people saying, you know, shut down Red Hill forever, move the ta- uh, move, move the fuel elsewhere. Um, he told uh, one of my colleagues here at Civil Beat earlier this week that, um, you know, the military presence in Hawaii is an important part of our economy, and he's not really um, pushing for them to permanently decommission its tank facility, um, which, you know, the Navy is very um, attached to the idea of keeping Red Hill open. They say it's a vital national security asset, um, and they they really want to keep it going, if at all possible. Um, But the governor's stance is putting him at odds with some state lawmakers who really aren't counting on the health department's order to keep our drinking water safe. Um, They're hoping to prohibit the health department from permitting any underground fuel storage tanks that would be within a half mile of an aquifer. And that would definitely apply to Red Hill. And we haven't really heard anything officially from Mayor Rick Langiardi either, right? Right. He's been um, remarkably quiet on this issue. In fact, he his official stance is no comment. Um, I asked him about that a couple weeks ago, and he was really wanting to stay out of it. Um, so that, that is his stance. He's um, He says he supports Ernie Lau at the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, um, but otherwise, you know, doesn't really have much to say. Well, you know, it, it is interesting as you kind of look back over the last, what, eight years or, or longer, you know, because it's just been the Board of Water Supply and, and the Sierra Club that has been, um, you know, barking up the tree <laughs> saying, we right. think there could be a problem here. And now it's, it, you know, you, you've got this huge crescendo of, uh, of support uh, about the, the risk that our water is at with this uh, fuel so close to our aquifer. Um, so it, it's going to be real interesting to kind of see how this plays out for the rest of this year. Absolutely. Yeah, the calls to shut down Red Hill have gotten much louder um, in the past couple weeks and, and months, so we'll be watching it closely. Right, and so uh, we'll be waiting to see what the uh, inve- investigations, the different probes that are uh, underway now, what they come up with. Uh, but yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, as you say, it, it just looks like the actual defueling process is not going to happen quick, and who knows how long it's going to take. Right. Hopefully, we'll see an investigation within the next couple weeks. Um, according to the Navy, the Pentagon currently is reviewing it, um, and the Health Department's requested a copy. So we'll we'll stay tuned on that. All right. Okay. As Red Hill turns, but thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. We have been chatting with reporter Christina Jedra for today's reality check. To read the full story on Red Hill, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org This is Jason Taglianetti, host of Applause in a Small Room. In the past eight years, we've enjoyed great live performances from local and visiting artists in just about every genre. January 30th will be my last show here at HPR, and we'll listen to our most memorable performances, some you've heard and some you haven't. That's a special episode of Applause in a Small Room this Sunday at 4 p.m. here on HPR One.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific Institute's School of the Arts, offering intensive and immersive arts training, accepting applications for the 2022-2023 school year, midpac.edu. If you had a check for a million dollars, how would you spend it? Okay, the check is more like $386 million. It's federal pandemic recovery funds. And it is the city that wants to know what kinds of areas you think need more support. Officials want your input, so now's your chance to have your say. A survey is underway and closes in the middle of next month. This morning, we talked to Amy Asselbaugh, who is the executive director of the city's Office of Economic Revitalization, about where those federal recovery funds could be most impactful. So far, the city has received about $193 million and will receive the next tranche in May. And so to this point, the administration has been working with the city council to determine generally how we would like to use those funds. And so there's four categories which are also posted on our website, so oneoahu.org backslash FRF, where the survey is located, that kind of demonstrate and share information about those areas. One is to provide community support and address economic impacts. That's about $110 million. Number two is to support an equitable economic recovery for $156 million. And then there's an opportunity to modernize city operations with about $70 million. And finally, to invest in critical island infrastructure, about $50 million. So I will say that those amounts were set and turned in as a report at the end of August 2021 to the federal government. But because the infrastructure bill has passed, we're looking at what could come from any version of the Build Back Better plan and making sure that any additional federal funds that are coming down, including some left up formula funds that are helping programs like the area of workforce development and uh, transportation during this time, that we make sure that whatever we had thought in August is used best in the additional funds that are available. If there's an infrastructure project that we had put in this fiscal recovery funds plan that looks like it might fit better now under the infrastructure bill, we hope to be able to work with the council, you know, to to change those allocations around. And so there's not a lot absolutely set in stone. The administration has been asking the council for flexibility in the use of these funds. And I think there's an acknowledgement that given, you know, what's happened with Omicron, we're still not completely through this pandemic. And so to this point, a majority of the funds, which you can also see on that webpage on oneoahu.org backslash FRF, where um, the dollars have gone so far, and that is primarily to public health support to date. At first blush, you know, I was thinking that the critical infrastructure was low, given, you know, climate mm-hmm. change and all the things that we need to do just to become a more resilient community. But if there's an o- another pot of money with the infrastructure bill, you know, you want to get the best bang for the buck. Definitely updating and modernizing our infrastructure for climate change is important to the city and county. We do a lot to manage roads and bridges and other things on this island. But the fact is, under the fiscal recovery fund eligibility rules, we're only able to address broadband or our water infrastructure. So a lot of times people will think of transportation immediately um, when you hear the word infrastructure, and none of that is allowed in terms of the use of a fiscal recovery fund. So it's very restrictive in terms of infrastructure, but one of the proposals was to work on some of the new stormwater utility updates under the fiscal recovery funds infrastructure portion. But now, since the infrastructure bill has passed, that might be considered to be put in under from that available funding instead of the fiscal recovery fund. All the work in progress, I'll definitely say that. And so that's why I think now is an important time to get more feedback from the public. There's obviously the the democratic process that we have already is getting the input and working with the council. But I think the administration 
wanted to provide an opportunity outside of participating in a council hearing that people could go in their own time, look at some of the guidance in terms of what we can actually spend the funding on and share what their priorities are based on what they're seeing in their community as we are trying to recover from this pandemic. What's the response been like so far? We're kind of surprised and really happy, actually, to see that as of today, 888 different individuals have responded to the survey. We're going to keep it open till February 15th to try to get a full month of community input. We're doing different kinds of outreach, including like some paid social media to reach people who wouldn't typically participate in a city council hearing or any kind of other public input when we're talking about public plans or city plans. So this survey, we felt, was an opportunity to reach people that didn't regularly interact with the city government. Have you been able to tabulate some of those responses yet, or are you waiting till the survey closes? We can see some of the responses because obviously it's an online platform. So I think the main thing that we're happy to see is Oahu residents that are responding. There's, you know, like I said, there's 888 people to date that have responded. And there's certain trends that are starting to show themselves in terms of the top three areas. But we want to keep it open and make sure that everyone has an opportunity to input and impact those top three areas. You know, whether it's the top three or the top five, we'll share that back on the oneoahu.org backslash FRF webpage. We'll also share it back with the council and try to make sure that everyone who provided us information to respond to them will also be able to, you know, directly see the results of the survey they participated in. In terms of the plan, the biggest portion, $156 million, is dedicated towards an economic recovery. But to date, the majority of the funds have gone towards still the public health emergency. So it's over $15 million for test kits on this island. Isolation and quarantine, as you've seen in the news, is still something that the city needs to put dollars into and keep open for you know, multi-generation households and others who don't have a safe space to quarantine um, from other household members. There's some money for mobile vaccination services. And then I think you've also seen that our um, Office of Housing and Homeless Services has set up a new what's called crisis outreach response and engagement service. And so that's where we're also using some of the initial investment for our fiscal recovery funds. So I work at the Office of Economic Revitalization. So we're thinking more deeply about where and how we invest these funds for economic recovery. And you have a job training program that you've got in place? So at the end of last year, we were able to use some of the remaining CARES Act funds that just expired in terms of our ability to use up the last $387 million that the city received. And so we're using both the um, Oahu Back to Work program that we ran in 2020 and feedback and, you know, learning from Oahu Back to Work in 2021. Both programs were run during the fall semester, and this time there were over 823 qualified applicants. We worked really closely with the University of Hawaii and were able to offer free job training through all of the University of Hawaii system schools because the majority of it is online. So in the end, 590 people were able to sign up for classes, and we focused on our priorities, um, the state priorities, the University of Hawaii's priorities of healthcare, technology, skilled trades, clean energy, and for us, we're adding a sustainable agriculture and food systems at the city level. But a lot of the courses available so far have been in healthcare. Um, there's a lot of job openings, so we want to make sure that, you know, the training that we're doing is for available jobs, good jobs today. And that includes administrative and business training and then tech, cybersecurity, skilled trades. And by skilled trades, I mean everything from, yes, construction trades, but also HVAC training, um, electrician training, commercial drivers. These are all fields that pay pretty well and 
are also important, you know, to diversify and the long-term health of our economy. Well, we're just coming off that job fair, and, you know, we, we obviously have to fill those vacancies in city government just to keep providing the city services that taxpayers need. That's right. I think hiring at the city level is one of Mayor Blangiardi's priorities. So we've got a lot of different things going on in terms of a new innovation grant from our program, I guess, uh, with the Bloomberg and Harvard Institute to improve the process for city hiring so it's faster and just easier for people to actually get employed by the city. Yesterday, even our office participated in the city's job fair because we have around 15 positions open just in a very small and new office of ours, the Office of Economic Revitalization. But other departments, like the Honolulu Police Department, have over 300 vacant positions. And so when we rolled out Oahu Back to Work this fall, we worked with UH uh, to come up with and create a new course to help people prepare for the HPD exam. It was kind of exciting just to think, you know, this is a small step in the right direction to make sure that people have the proper credentials and training or able you know, to uh, successfully get through the HPD exam. We could add, you know, the physical fitness training to that. There's a lot of opportunities in terms of those skilled trade positions that are available in the city. So we want to try to develop um, the skill building for people to be qualified for the over 2,000 vacant positions that are open in the city right now. That was Amy Asselby, director of the city's Office of Economic Revitalization. Look for links to the survey on our website later today. January is National Slavery and Sex Trafficking Prevention Month, and one of the local nonprofits working to eliminate sex trafficking in our state is EMUA Alliance. It's been around since 2011 and estimates that there are about 150 high-risk sex trafficking establishments in Hawaii. As part of the uh, effort to help victims transition out of the commercial sex trade, the organization launched its Host Homes program this month. Similar to the foster parent model, the program trains families to provide comprehensive support to the young adult trafficking survivor that chooses to stay with them during their first months of recovery. The conversations Russell Sabiano sat down with Chris Caulfield, the founder and executive director of Imua Alliance, to learn more about the program and the process for survivors to leave that life behind. During the pandemic, demand for our services at our organization increased by 330%. Wow. And that started to normalize as the pandemic until Omicron has started to subside and we started to reopen society, but we're still at extremely elevated level in demand for our services. So we know that during the pandemic, trafficking was something that was happening more frequently. The demand for services was higher. Our resources were more heavily distributed and relied upon. And and that's something that we're, to this day, that we're continuing to try to provide to the community. I've talked to some domestic violence organizations recently is the process for getting out of the commercial sex trade, is it a similar situation where it takes time? It's a process over time. It's not like a, a one and done thing. There's not one thing you can say to someone. What is the process or what seems to be the way that people are able to get out? Uh, that's absolutely correct. It's very similar to domestic violence. I think, unfortunately, one of the things that we have to combat in the anti-trafficking world as service providers is this cinematic idea. People have seen the movie Taken, and they think that either law enforcement or people like myself are going and busting into brothels and then and then rescuing survivors and bringing them back into you know their homes or to emergency shelters. It's, that's not how it works, right? It takes a long time to perform investigations when victims are identified properly. We have to place them in long-term continuums of care. It is quite quite a lengthy process. One of the problems right now in Hawaii's continuum of care is we don't have emergency shelter space, uh, adequate emergency shelter space for children or for adults. So there's only one emergency shelter for children in the state. 
There is no emergency shelter space dedicated to sex trafficking survivors, sexual exploitation survivors who have reached the age of majority, who are adults. And so the lack of a shelter space means that we don't have a centralized location from which we can coordinate care. And the inability to centralize care services from the, the emergency point of that, that first point of contact, that first crisis call, all the way through the restorative rehabilitative process, which can take, it takes years, but usually when we try to plan out a year's worth of services from emergency care, it can often involve things like addictive services, obviously psychological counseling, medical services, all kinds of different things, educational, occupational therapy. This takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of coordination and without a centralized space, without centralized locations or a well-articulated continuum of care with well-articulated strategies for everybody to be on the same page and involved in facilitating, it's extremely difficult and challenging to recover somebody who has been exploited in the sex trade. Is that something that you think is going to happen down the road? Is that something that you guys are working toward to be central? It is. So there are two things that we're working on specifically this year uh, that we're hoping to effectuate that I think would be make a really big difference. One with regard to children is we're working on a piece of legislation at the state legislature that would fund an emergency shelter for youth through the Department of Human Services. I think that would be uh, invaluable if there was a if there was a dedicated emergency shelter that we could rely on for child survivors of sexual exploitation to begin their recovery. And the other is that we are launching uh, a host homes program. Uh, right. and we realized when we were thinking this through in the, as our demand for services spiked in the last year and we're thinking through the lack of an emergency shelter space for adults, we were trying to figure out how we could do this in a feasible manner. It, it costs 10 to $12 million to create a, t- a residential treatment center. An emergency shelter costs anywhere from four to $6 million. It's a lot of money to raise. It's a lot of money to ask for from the state. Even when we're in a, you know, a, a surplus like we are now, it's still a, a lot of money and we need to sustain that over time. So we're trying to figure out how we can make an immediate impact and how we can rely upon resources that we already have in order to basically get the same result. And we got in touch with an organization called Point Source Youth, which is based out of California and has done a lot of work with homeless youth. Homeless youth are actually at much higher risk for sexual exploitation. There is a stat in the service provider community, 40% of homeless youth are approached for sexual exploitation within their first two weeks of being on the streets. So we started talking to advocates for for houseless unhoused youth unsheltered youth about what they do what kind of rapid rehousing models they do now point source youth had pointed us toward the toward something called a host homes program that they had run very successfully in san francisco san diego new york chicago and some other places that we then are, are trying to adopt here and basically what it is is this you take families who are willing to host a survivor Pre-screened, we have to go through we have to go through comprehensive background checks. We have to go through a screening process. We have to allow the survivors with whom they may be working to evaluate the family as well. There's an interview process, obviously, to make sure there's a good connection. We give them comprehensive trauma training in what a survivor endures, in what their restorative journey is going to look like, what they can expect as far as the emotional journey that survivors go through, how they can support them. The healing process is not a linear thing, right? It, the survivors have good days, they have bad days. And that's something that we try to train them in how to respond to and how to appropriately su- support somebody who is going through a, a trauma recovery journey. What they can expect in terms of the legal process, if survivors are, are involved in legal cases, how they can support all of these things in a way that is compassionate, that is caring, and that uplifts the emotional well-being of the survivors with whom we're serving. And then... That eliminates the need to build a new shelter space. Families already have houses. If they're willing to receive this kind of training, they have the resources in order to provide for the survivors. We give them a little bit of additional financial resources and financial benefit, financial assistance in order to help with all of all the interactions that they're doing with, with the survivors replacing in their care. They're willing to go through the trauma, the trauma training process. And then we, we, what we do is we, we're building a consortium of families who are willing to undergo that kind of trauma training. And then we allow the survivors that we're working with who are over willing to, or want to enter into this kind of program to look at the families who are willing to, to house a potential survivor, go through an interview process and decide who they want to stay with. And then we, we can create this whole network of trauma informed shelter spaces that are individual 
they're, they can address the unique individual needs of, of each survivor because we have families working with one individual supported by our care network, our care team. And we can do all of this in, for a fragment of the cost that would be needed in order to build an emergency shelter or build a, a residential treatment center. So that's something that we're, we're getting off the ground now. We've got a half a dozen survivors that we will be placing in host homes within the first half of this year. We're already up to 10 families who have asked to be a part of the, a part of the program and who, for whom we're providing trauma training right now. And of course, we'll continue to provide all of the care services for survivors that are necessary, everything from medical treatment to psychological treatment to educational programming, everything that they would need in order to, to effectuate their recovery from the point of emergency and crisis all the way through the end result when they are able to get back on their feet and make a life for themselves. Our goal is to build our host homes program up from 10 to 15 people in its first year up to 30 to 50 people within hopefully three years, three to five years. And that is roughly equivalent to what a residential treatment center would serve. Uh, the age group that we're targeting is that 17 to 26-year-old group. We find that people who are just reaching the age of majority, just reaching adulthood, or who have already become adults, lose a lot of the services that they would be entitled to because they're aging out of the child welfare system. There are a lot of child, a lot of programs for survivors of abuse and survivors of sexual exploitation that are very, they're specific to children. Once you've aged into adulthood, you lose access to those services. So this is a program that we're hoping can meet that gap that exists in our state's continuum of care and really work toward meeting survivors' needs. You talked about how the, the end game is to get the survivors on their feet. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like once, once they go through the, the host homes? What does the next step look like for them? Yeah, so one of the things that I think people don't often take into consideration is that once you've gone through a therapeutic process, it's not like there's an end point and you just are released into the world and suddenly you're healed and everything is better. That's not actually how this works. The healing process often takes years. And so what we want to do is because we're working with young adults for the most part, we want to get them to a place where they can either enter into an educational program, a university program, or if they, if they need to, to get their GED or something to that effect, or get them occupational training so they can enter into the workforce and start becoming financially secure. That's one of the, the big gaps in our state's continuum of care that we don't talk about enough, is that when we take a survivor out of the, the trafficking world, we're in a state with a massively high cost of living. They still have to survive. And if we don't provide their financial security, it's very likely and happens quite frequently that they'll fall back into the sex trade simply as a means of survival. So one of the things with the host homes program that we want to do is make sure that we're equipping them with the means to attain the financial security that's necessary to, to survive in Hawaii without having to fall back on, on the commercial sex trade. We're beginning to work with employment agencies, some local businesses, some small businesses have been actually quite, quite kind to us in saying that they would like to have host some of the survivors as interns or to go through apprenticeships so that they can learn the skills necessary to obtain employment in some high value industries so that they can earn a good living at the end of the at the end of the program, and they won't have to worry about falling back on the sex trade as a means of survival. And like I said, we also want to make sure if they want to, if they want to go back to school, we also want to make sure that we're supporting that as well. So we will be providing scholarship opportunities for young adults who are going through this program to go to the University of Hawaii at Manoa, to go to community college so that they can get their degrees as well, if that's what they want to do. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you very much. That was Emua Alliance founder and executive director Chris Cofield ta- talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. Cofield says the public can help in the effort to eliminate sex trafficking by being aware of the people around you in reporting suspicious behavior. If you see a young person acting out of character, you know, they may seem shy or they, they look like they're around an older man who's controlling their property, being demeaning to them and always checking up on them. Caulfield says the most useful thing you can do is to take a quick photo or video with your phone, send it to authorities or a service provider like Emua Alliance. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, supporting the arts and education, believing that a sustainable economy requires skilled and creative entrepreneurs. 
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Phil Cousineau, author of The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be providing an entirely new and positive interpretation to this often misunderstood Greek myth. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Taiwanese transplant Sun Hui used music to connect with her family when COVID shut the doors on international travel. Unable to return home for her annual visit, she promised her family to share recordings of herself playing the Erhu, a two-string spike fiddle. The solo home project soon grew wings and turned into a full-fledged album featuring Hawaii musicians. HPR's Lillian Song caught up with the Nahoku Hanohana winner to learn about the Erhu and the new album. For people who are new to this, can you describe what the instrument you play is? What is the erhu? Yes, so erhu in Chinese, er means two. So the instrument has two strings. And hu, actually, literally, it means barbarian. So from the name, you can the instrument was not original Chinese instrument and nobody really knows who brought it. It's been in China for about 900 years probably and so I played the instrument, I brought it to Hawaii and then right now I'm playing with a lot of Western instruments so like piano, steel guitar and accordion any different instruments. So I let the Erhu travel again. (laughs) I think Hawaii is a perfect place for you to find the synergy of different instruments, of the different musicians. You all bring your musicianship to this project and then finding the music to collaborate and play together on what I've heard, very refined, very elegant, beautiful, and it works so well with the different instruments you've been talking about with Bobby Ingano playing steel guitar, accordion, piano by Pierre Grill. And I know in the past you've also worked with other artists. How has it been for you in this process of being a transplant from Taiwan but finding your place here in Hawaii and bringing your musical voice into the scene? To me, it was very nature. I studied Erhu when I was seven years old, I learned very, very traditional technique. You know, I had many teachers, they went to Taiwan from China during the Cultural Revolution, and they told me all the most authentic Erhu music. But then when I came to Hawaii, I really enjoyed this place because this place, we should embrace other cultures and everybody really get along together. To me, it was very natural. I didn't think, okay, I'm going to use my music, take my erhu, and then play with other people. So when I first arrived in Hawaii, I connected with Jeff Peterson and Greg Sardina through the music critic John Berger. He helped us to get together. We just met and then we play, and then the very first time just fits very well. And so we said, okay, let's do a recording. I had my first album with Jeff and Greg, two very popular local musicians. So I worked with them, and we play Hawaiian music, and they would play Chinese music with me as well. And we had a lot of concerts together. So I was lucky. That was our first album, and it got the best instrumental album, the Nahoku Hanahano Award in 2018. Wow, so you were fitting right into the music landscape, making a splash with your first album. And you know, as I was reviewing your body of work, listening to your newest album, I really enjoyed one of your original pieces, was it Butterfly 
Butterfly Rain. Yeah, that one was kind of interesting. The first line of the melody, it came to me when, do you remember when COVID? It was about one week or two weeks, something, the government shut down. <laughs> Everything shut down and everybody has to stay home. So nobody can get out. And yeah, so I was in my apartment, nice weather, and I can see the ocean. Everything was so good, but I couldn't get out. Still, <laughs> you know, I was like a butterfly. You know, I'm so pretty, and I want to go out. I want to have fun. I want to fly everywhere, but then I couldn't because the rain is so hard. In this case, the rain is the virus. That's how I feel when I first thought about this melody. Fluidly, it's like second nature. How do you create those notes on just two strings? The instruments look so simple. So there's no stretch, no fingerboard, no any hint uh, where to place the fingers. But because of that, it gave me a lot of opportunity to do anything I want. <laughs> so I can I can play any pitch I want on this instrument and it's a lot of practice because it, so so like a guitar there's fingerboard on erhu there's no fingerboard hmm. so I need to know where to put my fingers hmm. talk about your latest project and how did that come about I was going back to Taiwan, but then I had to cancel the trip because the pandemic starts. And then my family in Taiwan, they all complain about how come I cannot go back to Taiwan anymore. And so instead of going back to Taiwan, I promised my dad, I said to him, okay, I will record some music for you. And then so you can still hear me. And then at one point, I started making videos. So he can not only hear me, but also see me. And he really likes it because he really likes it. It really encouraged me to do another one, just one after another. By the time when I finished 12 songs, I finished the whole album. <laughs> Many people ask me, how did I pick the songs and why do I play a lot of old songs, you know, old-fashioned songs? The reason is because this album and those songs were actually for my father, songs popular in 1960s and 70s. So when he was dating my mom and he was singing those songs to her, so for example, like, can help falling in love, Moon River. And so I'm really glad that I've finished the album, not only for myself, but also for my family. Just to hear the genesis of how this project came to be, it comes from a place of love. It comes from you wanting to share a part of yourself with your family, really dedicating the music of your parents to yes. to the playlist. And... This is how your your dad wooed your mom singing Elvis. <laughs> That's a beautiful yes. picture. Yeah, and and not only that, you know, I was this is this is the first time I worked with Pierre Griel. He is a wonderful, wonderful musician and sound engineer, recording engineer. So when the pandemic started, I called him. I said. You know, we don't have gigs anymore, uh, but I still want to do something. And why don't we just record something, play something together? And we just start without too much rehearsal or too much talking. We just start. And it just came out so naturally. Every time when we record, it's so natural. And we always record live, so not you know, overdub. We just record together. 
energy inside. And uh, every time when I when I finish a song, I always got really excited and I want to make the video and then send it to my family in Taiwan. So that really gave me the motivation to do the the whole album. Hmm. So Sun, you were quite busy during lockdown, sending the recordings back to Dad of your Erhu playing, morphing into an album. And now you're going to be doing something which you have been really looking forward to, which is to be back on stage playing live in concert on February 1st, which happens to be the Lunar New Year, the Chinese New Year. What can audiences expect to see? Because I cannot go back to Taiwan again this year for the Chinese New Year and cannot stay with my family again. (laughs) So I was thinking to... Um, have a concert and have my audience act like my family to be with me. <laughs> I really hope that I will attract people who never heard about Erhu because a lot of people will be really surprised how this little two-string small instrument can make so much uh, interesting sound and it sounds pretty. And I can play slow, I can play really fast too, and I can play with different instruments, I can play with different culture. So I really hope people would enjoy, I would not call the concert authentic Chinese music. This is really not, but I'm really trying to, just like myself, I came from Taiwan, I speak English, but my English has accent. <laughs> and so my music is going to sound like it's Chinese music, but then it got the accent of something, <laughs> you know. So it's a future music. And I, I really want to show people how culture can be all together and work peacefully, smoothly together. That was Sun Wei, who plays the Erhu, the Chinese two-string fiddle. She recently released a new album with Pierre Grill called Can't Help Falling in Love, a project born of the pandemic. Uh, they will be joined by Bobby Ingano, Wade Cameron, and Lee Dwin Clark performing a Chinese New Year concert. Uh, that will be next Tuesday at the Blue Note in Waikiki. We'll share links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That's a wrap for this Thursday. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will be sitting in for an Aloha Friday show. And we talked about Chinese New Year. What are your thoughts for this year of the tiger? Color Talk Backline, 708-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.